I want to read our text this morning. Uh, I had the opportunity several times to not preach this sermon, but Jake had told me how jealous he was that I got this text um, because this is, it really is the most important day in the history of God's people of Israel. Here is where God comes down and he confirms the covenant that he made with his people. So let's read together in Exodus chapter 24. We'll read the whole thing. This is the Lord speaking. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as if it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us, for your son's sake. Amen. Now, I've been to seminary. I spent a long time in seminary. And, and once you go through, uh, you know, a long period, you might start, back to th start to think back on things that maybe they could have improved upon. And I think there's one area of seminary that they could have improved on. I think that they should offer a preaching class, and the core text of that class should be the Chronicles of Narnia. I say that because uh, it should be required 
reading for us because I don't know of a more frequently cited source of sermon illustrations. I mean, it's all the time. I'm embarrassed to admit that it was only last year that I finally read them. It's a shame it took me so long. They're wonderful. Today's text reminds me of the final scene in the final book of the series. It's called The Last Battle. Now listen, I would give you a spoiler alert, but these books have been out for 65 years, so I hate it for you. I'm going to spoil the end. You snooze, you lose. In the series, Narnia represents God's world, which is ruled by a majestic lion named Aslan, who represents Christ. Aslan created Narnia. He ransomed the true Narnians who were loyal to him at the stone table. And at the end of the story, he recreated Narnia. The old Narnia he causes to pass away and he brings in the new, fuller, better, more glorious Narnia for his loyal subjects to possess as their eternal inheritance. Is this starting to sound familiar to you? This is a picture of heaven in which the old passes away and all things become new. There's a tremendous sense of excitement as the subjects of that new and glorious kingdom begin to explore. They leap over hills and cascade down waterfalls. Each new thing they encounter is more amazing than anything they've ever seen before. They don't stop. They keep moving faster and faster. Everyone shouts to each other, further up and further in. And they rush off to see more wonders in their new land. In our text this morning, we see a similar progression. We're going to see three scenes each one moving further up God's mountain and further in to the presence of God. And I want to start with good news. Here is the good news for you. We, as New Covenant believers, experience that same progression. We who were once far off are brought further up and further into the presence of the Father through faith in the finished work of the Son. So the first scene we see here is in verses 1 through 8. In this scene, we're going to see Moses. He's the mediator of the old covenant. And we're going to see that our mediator brings us into right relationship with the Father. Our mediator brings us into right relationship with the Father. Now, it's been a couple weeks since we've heard from Exodus, but here's the context for you. The first two verses sort of finish the preceding section. Um, In chapter 19, God commands the Israelites to be faithful to him. And then in chapter 20, which even if you don't, even if you haven't belonged to a church for a long time, you're likely familiar with the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, or the Decalogue. That happens in chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. God gives the Ten Words. It's referred to as the Words in verse 3, and the Law in verse 12. In chapter 20, verse 22, through the end of chapter 23, God gives the rules that follow. And I want to give a shout out to Pastor Jake. Uh, gave three incredible sermons on the demands of the covenant. You can find those Right now, if you want to, but hopefully after the service, you can find those at icbcmw.org slash sermons. So our website slash sermons or in your favorite podcast app. We've tried to make it as available as possible. Those sermons are called the demands of the covenant where we listen to God's laws for his people. Now, uh, the preceding section here, it ends with a command, which is be loyal only to God and a promise of blessing. 
God will be with you. He will drive out the nations ahead of you. He will go into the land and you will be blessed if you will only obey God. Now, verses 1 and 2, it concludes here. This is the conclusion of what verse 7 calls the book of the covenant, which I believe encompasses chapters 20 through 23. Now, the Lord brings his people near to confirm that covenant with them. How will the people respond to the word of the Lord? We are not filled with much confidence that they'll respond well, but we see that they actually do, at least initially. They declare together, we will obey the commands of the Lord. But before we get too far in, we need to understand. To understand this text, we have to understand Moses and the role that he played for the people of God. Moses is the mediator between a holy God and sinful man. To this point, it's very difficult, at least it was for me, to track down how many times Moses walks up the mountain and walks back down the mountain. So many times that Pastor Jake labeled or titled one of his sermons, Moses gets his steps in. I think he's gone up four times and down five, but it actually is pretty hard to tell at this point. But listen, this is Moses' job. His job is to walk between heaven and earth and to represent a holy God to a sinful people and vice versa. I I remember a... You ever have a moment where someone introduces you and you're very embarrassed? Happens a lot when you're a preacher. It just happened to me a bit. But I was on a golf course one time, which in itself is embarrassing. I was playing golf with a a member of a church that I was working at at the time. And we made the turn. The turn is you finish hole number nine, you're headed to the back nine. Sammy can be my witness on that one. We're at number 10. We said, let's go into the clubhouse and get a drink real quick. So we went in. I remember I got a Pepsi because we lived in North Carolina at the time. That's home of Pepsi. Uh, So uh, I'm with this man who's who's in his 60s. And uh, we had become friends. And he saw a friend of his, and he introduced me to his friend, and he said a sentence that mortified me. He said, I, I don't know if he meant well by this or not, or if he was just speaking out of ignorance, but here's what he said. He said, I want you to meet Andrew. He's my connection to God. And I thought to myself, no, I'm not. Please don't say that. Instead, what I said was, hi, I'm Andrew, <laughs> nice to meet you. But I was, I was terrified, I was mortified, because I'm not his connection to God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 makes it very clear. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Listen, we have one mediator. We have a greater than Moses. We have one man who walks between heaven and earth, who represents a holy God to a sinful people. And he represents a sinful people to a holy God. It's the man, Jesus Christ. To understand this text, we need to see that everything that Moses does in Exodus chapter 24 points us forward to our greater mediator. Moses, here in this text, mediated the old covenant between God and man. 
He is representing God to men and vice versa. He mediates that old covenant. Now, back in the ancient Near East, any covenant had to be confirmed by both parties to be binding. It has to be confirmed by both parties. It would be a weird wedding if you were uh, in one state and your bride was in the other on Zoom. That wouldn't work that well. You need to be there. And here, God descends to meet with and confirm his covenant with his people. So let me ask you the question, what needed to happen for the covenant to be established? I'll give you three things that needed to happen. Number one, proclamation of the word and a response of commitment. The terms have been laid out in the presence of both parties, and now they need to be confirmed. Look with me at verse three. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Look at verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they double, double down here. And we will be obedient. We'll find out next week or in a few weeks that they, they weren't obedient. You needed the proclamation of the word and a response of Commitment, you also needed, number two, the acceptance of a sacrifice. In ancient covenants, the sacrifice uh, would be presented between the parties, and they had this custom where they would split the sacrifice in two, and both parties would pass between the pieces. What do you think that that demonstrated? You don't know because you haven't spent a lot of time in the sex, but I'll tell you, it demonstrated the gravity of the covenant. You, you walk between two dead pieces to confirm this covenant. It means that this covenant has serious weight to it. Let's see how this happened in chapter 24. Look with me at verse 4. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw it against the altar. Now, you're lucky this morning. Uh, you can take the, the man out of being a youth pastor, but you really can't always take the youth pastor out of the man. And I really wanted to have a bucket of blood and start chucking it at you guys because you would never forget this sermon. But Jake decided that would be a little bit gross and we might have some stains in the carpet and whatever. I'm like, yes, sir. Okay, we won't do that. But here's a, a sacrifice and a burnt offering. They would, the people would offer the offering and it would be burnt completely. And a peace offering, they would separate out uh, the blood and they would save part of it um, to consume later. We'll see that here in just a minute. Keep going with me to verse 8. Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now this sacrifice accomplished a dual purpose. A dual purpose. I'm going to go kind of quickly here. But the first purpose that it accomplished was atonement. One writer said this, A bloody altar always signifies the forgiveness of sins. This first sprinkling, where Moses sprinkled the blood on the altar, that sprinkling is Godward. That altar representing the presence of God. And this served as a propitiation for the people. In other words, because of the blood, the people's sins are forgiven. 
because of the blood, their sins are forgiven. Here we see the concept of justification. That is, that people are made right before God. How? On the basis of their word? No. It's on the basis of the blood applied on their behalf. This is how we are made righteous before a thrice holy God as well, because of the blood. Man cannot be brought near to God without atonement. And the second purpose of this sacrifice is sanctification or consecration, if you will. This sprinkling where Moses takes the blood and sprinkles it on the people is manward. And it represents peace with God. Here, the blood and all its benefits are applied to the people. In this scene, the people are set apart as a holy people to serve the one true living God. They're not the only people sprinkled by blood. I want to read you a quick verse out of 1 Peter chapter 1. This is the introduction to the letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, now listen, for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. We are spiritually, symbolically sprinkled with the blood of Christ so that we can be set apart as a holy people to serve the one true God. So we see that we need a proclamation of the terms of the agreement, the word, and the the subsequent response. We see that we need the acceptance of a sacrifice. And thirdly, we are going to see in ancient Near Eastern covenants that we would need to have a covenant table fellowship or a meal together and just hold on because that's coming here in a second in verses 9 through 14. Now Moses mediated the old covenant between God and man, but I have really, really good news for you. We don't need Moses anymore because Jesus mediates the new covenant between God and man. See, the old covenant depended on obedience to the law, but the new covenant depends on clinging by faith to Christ's obedience on our behalf. Let's just read about it, if you will. I'll be in Jeremiah chapter 31. It's uh, past the Psalms in the middle of your Bible. You can turn there if you like. I'll start in chapter 31, verse 31. Here is the prophecy that the new covenant is on its way. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Oh, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The scriptures promise a new covenant to come, and Jesus is the mediator 
of that new covenant. Now, we haven't seen that in our text yet, so you might be asking to yourself, how do you know that? I mean, we've got the old covenant. We have the promise of a new covenant. Well, how do you know that Jesus mediates the new covenant? And I want to teach you something real quick. Uh, I'm the discipleship pastor here, so I want to give you a key to understanding the Old Testament. It seems pretty simple, but a lot of people don't know it. Are you ready? If you want to understand an Old Testament text, the best way is to see if the New Testament talks about it. And the New Testament talks about Exodus chapter 24. We've already read it this morning, but let's go ahead and go there again. Hebrews chapter 9. I want to show you explicitly here in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant between God and man. Hebrews chapter 9. Look with me at verse 15. It's talking about Christ in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now look at verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. Skip down with me. Verse, eight, verse 19, when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Do you, do you see our scene here? In Exodus chapter four, 24, it appears here in Hebrews chapter 9. Interestingly enough, the author of the Hebrews, we don't know who that is, um, knows a little bit more than even the text says. The introduction of hyssop branches was probably how Moses sprinkled the people and that he sprinkled the book in addition to the altar and the people. Um, these are just curiosities to me. Now, this is the blood of the covenant. And look, verse 21, in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified by blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, Hebrews 9 helps us interpret Exodus chapter 24 for today. You remember what happened? Moses, the representative of God to man, makes a sacrifice that results in the forgiveness of the sins of the people of Israel and their consecration to service before the Lord. How much better then when the great high priest himself lays his own life down as the sacrifice on our behalf? Listen to what the new mediator does for us. Christ mediates the covenant first by revealing it and then by serving as the priest who offers himself in sacrifice. Jesus isn't just the priest. He's also the lamb on the altar for us. The new covenant depends on clinging by faith to his obedience. Like Israel, we were far from God. You remember how they're not allowed to come in? They have to stay far off at the foot of the mountain. They can't touch it lest they die. Brothers and sisters, you and I were far off too. We could come nowhere near the presence of a holy God on our own right, in our own works. We needed the blood applied to us so that we could be accepted by a holy God. But Jesus brought us near to God by means of a greater sacrifice. 
Just like the Israelites, we heard the proclaimed word of God and we responded in faith. And now if you read Hebrews chapter 10, he brings us into the presence of God. What a blessing. What a privilege. We were far from God. Now we have access to him. You have access now. Listen, if you belong to Christ, you're further up and further in already. And I want to take you to one more scene that is, I would just say, scandalous. If you look at Matthew chapter 26, you don't have to turn there because I'm just going to quote you one verse. Well, actually, stay where you are. Exodus 24, listen to this phrase. Verse 8, Moses says, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, if you fast forward to the New Testament, very soon before Jesus dies, he sits down with his disciples and he gets ready to have his last meal with them. And here's what he says in in chapter 26, verse 28. Speaking of the, the wine, drink for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I worry that we're so familiar with the table that we don't realize the gravity of what just happened in that scene. We have the confirmation of the covenant in Exodus 24. We have the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31. And then Jesus stands and says, this is my blood of the covenant. Which is to say, the new covenant is here and it starts with me. And it comes from me, and it's mediated by me. I wonder if the disciples got it. And I wonder if we get it. When we come to the table and celebrate that God has covenanted with man on the basis of the blood of the Savior, I wonder if we get it. I hope that the table doesn't just become a... a, a, detached regularity for you. Oh, I I hope you realize the gravity of the body broken for you and the blood poured out for you and the new covenant established in the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus announces the new covenant is here and we celebrate and remember the new covenant together at the table. In one sense, we have access to the Father. But in another sense, in a temporal sense, we're still waiting for the greatest access to the Father, which is eternity with Him, right? Are you groaning for that day? I'll tell you something. In the last week, I've been groaning for that day to come. We will stand in the presence of the living God. We will eat with him. We will see him. We will worship him for eternity, not because of your faithfulness, but because of his. We have access to the father because of the shed blood of our mediator. Our mediator brings us into right relationship with the father. The people entered into relationship with God while they were yet far off. Now let's move to scene number two. Let's move further up the mountain and further in to God's presence. Our mediator in verses 9 through 14 
brings us into table fellowship with the Father. Into table fellowship with the Father. In this scene here, the leaders go partially up the mountain and they feast in the presence of God on the mountain. What they eat is very likely the remainder of the peace offering. And as I've already told you, ancient covenants concluded with a fellowship meal. But we need to understand, and Pastor Jake talked about this a few weeks ago, we need to understand the gravity of a meal in the ancient Near Eastern culture. It meant a whole lot more to them than it means to us. I just would be shocked to see somebody um, eating on the move back then. A meal was really important. And you wouldn't share a meal in your house with someone that you did not accept and welcome and respect. Sharing a meal meant that you were welcomed, accepted, approved, and respected. This is why some of Jesus' meals were so scandalous. You're telling me you approve of the lifestyle of that woman sitting at your table? Can you understand why the Pharisees were so outraged? Tables were exclusive. And believers, when we welcome people to our tables, we follow the example of Christ. This meal meant that God had accepted the sacrifice. A holy God cannot accept a sinful people without a sacrifice. We just read, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And previously, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 12, God gives a very, very serious warning to the people of Israel. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. What do you think was going through the minds of those leaders as they climbed part of the way up the mountain? I know what will be going through my mind. I sure hope I don't die today. But they didn't die that day. Not only do the leaders go up the mountain, they're invited up the mountain. This is proof positive that God accepted the sacrifice for them, that they were considered right before him. Here's the theme in the text, one theme of the text. God controls the terms of access to himself. And God has invited these leaders to sit and eat in his presence on a mountain that meant sure death for whoever would walk up it. One principle we can see here is that uh, an intruder is in danger, but an invited guest is safe. Whoever prays for me is my favorite church member. I'm okay with having favorites. I know Jesus doesn't, but like I do, okay? And if you pray for me, you got an inside track. And uh, that's why I love Bill Sessom. Bill Sessom encourages me relentlessly, and he prays for me, and he tells me about it. So when I give you this illustration, know that I love Bill Sessom. But here's something I know about Bill if you walk into Bill's house in the middle of the night, you have put yourself in danger. <laughs> right? An intruder is in danger, but what would make the difference? If Bill got out of his bed at three in the morning and went to the fridge for a late night snack 
and he sees a figure in his kitchen, what makes the difference? What puts them from danger to safety? An invitation, right? If I've been invited into his house to stay, I'm not in danger. I'm a guest. And here we are. These leaders go up the mountain into a dangerous place and they're welcome there. They're not in danger for one reason and one reason alone, God invited them. The leaders were invited into God's presence on the basis of the blood and friends. I have some seriously good news for you. So are we. We are welcomed into God's presence through the blood of the mediator. This meal meant that, they, that God had accepted the sacrifice. It also meant that God showed mercy on a sinful people. Look with me at this text, verses 9 through 14. This is amazing to me. Verse 10. They saw the God of Israel. Verse 11. They beheld God. Notice they didn't just eat there. They saw him. They beheld him. This is another thing the scripture warns about repeatedly. What does he say just a few chapters later? God said to Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And here we have the testimony of the scriptures that they saw God. To what degree did they see God? We don't know. The only picture described here is the area around his feet, which suggests to me, and I'm I'm not inerrant here, but it suggests to me that maybe that's all they could see because they probably had fallen down. I mean, that happens a lot in the Bible. In the presence of a holy angel or in in a theophany, often people fall, as would you and me. (laughs) And they see his feet, and that's enough. They beheld God, they probably only saw his feet, but we don't know. Regardless, they saw some part of God and they lived. Amazing. They beheld God. They ate and drank. And that sounds a lot to me like what we do at the table. We behold God. We remember what he's done for us. We eat and we drink in his presence and we live. Why? Because the blood was shed for you. Listen, in this text, God could have killed them, but he invited them and he showed them mercy. I'll prove it. Look at verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, which is to say he could have laid his hand on the chief priests or the chief men of Israel. And the same is true for us. We are given access to God's presence through Christ. We eat with God now at the Lord's table, looking forward to the day when we will feast with God for eternity. This theme comes up throughout the scriptures. I'll read it to you in one place. Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a feast, a rich full, food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. 
and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in this salvation. Beloved, we are welcomed to this meal that we're going to take in a few minutes. And we are welcomed and invited to the great meal that is to come on the invitation of our mediator alone. How can you RSVP for the banquet? Trust Christ for your salvation. Oh, don't fall into the trap of trusting yourself. Trust Christ for your salvation. Here the leaders enjoy a feast in the presence of God and they go back down the mountain. But let's go, you and I, further up and further in with the mediator himself. Lastly, we see in verses 15 through 18, our mediator brings us into the eternal presence of the Father. Moses travels up the mountain into the manifest presence of God. His assistant Joshua travels with him some of the way, but Moses alone has the right to dwell in the fullness of God's presence. The journey took six days. Moses is going further up and further in. On the seventh day, God calls Moses into the cloud. Listen to me. Our mediator can endure the consuming fire of God's holy presence on our behalf. Only our mediator can endure this presence. Moses could only endure the presence of God by sheer grace. But Christ alone can endure based on his righteousness. God offers us entry into the presence of a perfectly holy God based on our mediator alone. Our mediator welcomes us into our eternal inheritance. Do you remember that rule I told you about reading the Old Testament? Let's follow the rule one more time. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Here we have a reference to the consuming fire of God's presence on the mountain at the end of, toward the end of the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> Look at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warmed them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he was promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. 
in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let me quickly summarize for you what we just read. Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, it points forward to Mount Zion, which will be our eternal home. Because the mediator of the new covenant applies the blood to us, we will dwell in the city of God forever without fear. And our kingdom to come cannot be shaken. I don't know if you realize that that's really good news. Our kingdom cannot be shaken. Do you feel like your kingdom's been shaken lately? Our kingdom cannot be shaken. We have an eternal residence, an eternal inheritance in the presence of the living God on his mountain. Our God is a consuming fire. And verse 28 tells us this should produce in us gratefulness and worship. See, beloved, Exodus 24 tells the story not just of Israel's salvation. It tells the story of our salvation. Let me read you the words of Philip Ryken. First, God calls us to worship him, speaking to us by his word. But we are separated from God by our sin. Therefore, we have to keep our distance until God provides a sacrifice of atonement through the blood of his covenant. Then, once our sins are covered, we can have fellowship with God. We can sit down to feast at his banquet. But how does the story end? It ends with our entrance into glory. This is the goal of our salvation. Not just to see God and to sit down with him, but to participate in his glory. What happened to Moses will happen to us. God will come down and lift us up into his glory. Ooh, that's good news. We rejoice because God has made his covenant with man and the terms are eternally secure. Not because you are faithful, but because he is. So how should we respond to all of this? I remember reading a book in seminary. And the argument was, uh, in one chapter of this book was that not all sermons have to end with give me something to do. Some sermons just end with let's worship God. How should we respond to this? Trust Christ. Trust Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man to forgive your sin on the basis of his own sacrifice. Beloved, save your seat at the eternal banquet table by faith in Christ alone. Don't trust in your own obedience to get you there. Trust in Christ. And look forward to the day when we experience the full glory of Mount Zion. The day will come when we will run and jump and play in the presence of God. We will see him face to face and we will be able to shout to one another further up and further in for all eternity and we will never reach the end of glory. Let's pray together. Oh, God, make us a faithful people. 
you have made a way through the shed blood of the perfect sacrifice, the priest himself who lays down on the altar for us. You have welcomed us in. You have given us the table to remind ourselves of what's waiting for us and how we get there. You have invited us into your eternal presence. I pray that you would soften hearts who hear this news. God, I pray that there would be no person who would be hard-hearted and would walk out of this room refusing the invitation to the banquet. God, help us to trust you. Help us to stop trusting ourselves. We know that Israel broke their covenant just a few days later. But the covenant stayed because of the blood. And God, the same is true for us. We are an unfaithful people. We fail and we sin. And we praise you that the blood of the covenant supplied by the mediator will never run dry. Help us to live our lives in response to the good news that Jesus made a way for us to be saved and he welcomes us into the eternal presence of the thrice holy God. Please meet us here at this table this morning. I pray that we would look forward to the day when our hope becomes sight and we feast with you. Pray these things in your name. Amen.